When you wake up in the morning and check your phone, does it feel like this or like this? Because with Shopify, your morning can feel like this way more often. That's the sound of a sale being made on your new Shopify store. And while client payments may require weeks or months of work, you can start generating a semi-passive income to grow your business by setting up a Shopify store all of your own. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your latest designs on shirts or bags or adding something totally different to your business, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. You can sell online, you can sell in person, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. With Shopify, you can set up your store in minutes and start selling immediately. And Shopify's award-winning support is there to help you as you go. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash freelance. That's all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash freelance to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash freelance or click the link in our show description and start waking up to this. Whether you want to travel more or communicate better with international clients, you need to try Babbel. I've used Babbel's courses and you can do the same in order to learn real life conversation skills in a different language. Order food, ask for directions, or speak to clients without having to use translation apps. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash freelance. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash freelance, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash freelance. Rules and restrictions apply. I'm Brandon Hull, and this is Freelance to Founder. Revenue right now, so 30K a month, monthly recurring revenue, and we have 12 team members. Uh, only one of those is actually a full-time employee who's with me in San Diego. Everyone else is a part-time contractor and a specialist in their part of the production process from project manager all the way down to the person who edits the highlight clips that go out on social media. Uh, and they can be working as little as five or 10 hours a week to maybe 25 hours is really the sweet spot to where people work for us and they have a great life and we, we give them consistent income uh, and then they can do their other projects and fun stuff uh, and higher value, higher dollar stuff on top of what they do for us in the business. On our show, we learn from entrepreneurs who've written software, developed online courses, expanded blogs, launched physical products, scaled creative agencies. They've built these businesses from solo endeavors to be much bigger than themselves. You get to hear the details of what they did, how they did it, and what decisions were the hardest to make. And it's a new era with this episode of Freelance to Founder. We embrace a new, more casual, and long-form approach to sharing our founder stories, but we're hoping you enjoy some added nuggets of value in every episode beyond the stories that we will call out as the episode rolls. It's a unique podcast format, and we hope you like it. And as we do so, we'd love your review. The show notes in every episode will include a link that you can click to leave your review for others who discover our show. Today, we feature the story of Matt Johnson, founder of Pursuing Results. Matt is proving that even the most upstart of industries can lead to multiple six figures in revenue in short order. He runs a service business, an agency that helps experts in whatever industry start their own podcasts to build an authoritative presence online and a devoted following. His team then manages every aspect of producing that podcast. Matt's career got started mostly in real estate, but he's learned how to apply street smart sales and marketing skills to grow and scale his business. You'll learn how he's gone about finding clients, 
hiring support personnel, and how he focuses his personal efforts for maximum impact. Great lessons for freelancers and founders outside of the world of podcasting. It's a series of great lessons in taking advantage of a new market by acting fast and scaling quickly. So without further ado, here is Matt Johnson, founder of Pursuing Results. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. I'm super pumped. We had a great initial conversation. We've had fun setting up. Uh, it was an adventure because we're doing a podcast in person, which uh, it's been a while since I did. Uh, and we have very similar personalities, similar backgrounds. Uh, so I'm really excited for the conversation. I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. Um, thanks for joining us. Your, your story is a, is a great one. It It's similar to mine uh, in the past as well. And we're, we'll talk a little bit about that as we as we go. But I think that I think it, it, what you're doing now couldn't be more timely. And um, what has happened with podcasting in the last six months to year is pretty incredible. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting to see how your business has grown and not just the numbers, but what you've done to make that business grow and how receptive you're finding people. Yeah, you're- yeah. And speaking of the last six months of podcasting, I had uh, Rob Walsh, the VP of Libsyn on my show here not that long ago, which I know you know. Uh, and something like half of the 500,000 podcasts on iTunes right now are six months old or less. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's what's been happening. So I think we're very quickly approaching a world where everyone has something, a marketing platform like a podcast, <laughs> if it's not a podcast exactly. Uh, pretty much everyone that we know is going to be like in this game, this battle for attention yep. that we're all playing. Yep. And so, yeah, the question is, are you playing to win? Yeah. And that's what I help my, the clients do so that, yeah, it is a very meta conversation. Good. So we're talking about the business pursuing results. Where is the business? Let's start at the present and we'll go back in time. Where, where's the business today? What can you tell us about uh, revenue, uh, employees, contributors, that sort of thing. Yep. So revenue right now, so 30K a month, monthly recurring revenue, and we have 12 team members. Uh, only one of those is actually a full-time employee who's with me in San Diego. Everyone else is a part-time contractor and a specialist, and they're part of the production process from project manager all the way down to the person who edits the highlight clips that go out on social media. Uh, and they can be working as little as five or 10 hours a week to maybe 25 hours is really the sweet spot to where people work for us and they have a great life and we, we give them consistent income uh, and then they can do their other projects and fun stuff uh, and higher value, higher dollar stuff on top of what they do for us in the business. Which, and people don't know this, but we're, um, we're talking in beautiful, sunny Pacific beach, you know, San Diego, California. So the, is is it safe to assume that you spend the rest of your time um, surfing, you know, living the San Diego lifestyle. (laughs) So this business runs on a couple hours a day and some, uh, and some coffee and that's all it takes or or what? Something like that. I wish I was cool (laughs) enough to surf. Uh, I am from the Midwest. And so I, I never learned, I've only been out here in San Diego for around the same time as when I started the business. So three plus years and never learned to surf. Um, I will hit my head on the surfboard. That's a legitimate fear. And, um, so no, I spend the rest of my time mainly networking, uh, working on content. And then of course, a fair bit of relaxing over here around the uh, giant hot tub we have, uh, and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean the legitimately, I had a very unique experience. So coming out as an agency owner, I like my first client as a consultant, quote unquote, was a guy who built a seven-figure business that only took him one day to run. So for me, that was my that was a big part was your of model? my reality. That yeah. was my model. Was I knew going straight out, that was what I was going for. So that's not something that it sounds like that's not something that you learned was a possibility. It was something that was built in up front into your expectation. This is how this how it should work. Hundred percent. Yeah, it was my expectation going in, which is very 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 different. So I knew I knew the business had to be built in a certain way. 
uh, we'll end up talking about focus, which is probably, it's a big theme for me in my life and my business for sure. So I know we're going to touch on that a lot, but yeah, for me, I realized that the key to that was finding the one thing I was going to sell to the one type of person. So right from the get go, my goal was to find that one thing and figure out who the one person was. Is this something that's in your DNA as well? You go back in time, the, the, the young Matt Johnson, was Matt always this relentlessly focused or did it take some sort of reckoning for that to emerge? Uh, no, I, I, I don't consider myself a natural entrepreneur. I'm jealous of the serial entrepreneurs that, that you know, started buying and flipping candy when they were seven. I was preaching to stuffed animals and playing the drums. Um, I was not at all concerned with business until I hit my mid-20s and I started a real estate team. I read The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, and that book was about the model of how do you build a business that you are out of production and you are the CEO of the business. That had a huge impact on me. So uh, it wasn't until my mid-20s that I, that I kind of flipped the entrepreneur switch and actually got a vision for building an entrepreneurial business where you weren't actually doing all the work. So th- this, is, this is back in Omaha? Yeah, this is back in Omaha. Okay. And were your parents in real estate or? Uh, no, my dad was a pastor and that's actually where the entrepreneurial stuff comes from because he started his own church. He left, he was a youth pastor for somebody else, started his own thing, ended up starting three churches over the course of my lifetime. Um, and I watched him run that essentially as mostly a one man show with an assistant. So you could call him a solo entrepreneur in that space. Um, church never got bigger than like 150 people. That was a nice sweet spot. Uh, most churches stopped growing at that point anyway. Uh, and so he never brought on like a big staff, but I saw the lifestyle of, of like getting up six in the morning, rolling into an office and sure. being, he was home back with us by like two o'clock in the afternoon every day. It was great for me as a kid. Um, so that was my model for kind of it, the only thing close to entrepreneurship I had in my life was, was watching him do that. That's not the story we're used to hearing. No, just, just FYI, <laughs> I've talked to people that have uh, started businesses almost on accident in some cases um, or almost shut them down because they were hobbies or projects on the side and they doubled down or whatever, but um, nothing, nothing along those lines. That's, yeah. that's, <laughs> haven't heard I have that a one. very weird background. So I'll get around to, uh, I'll get around to doing something, something more in that, in the, in the spiritual space later on. But yeah, I'm, I'm trying to like, uh, who was it? I was listening to Derek Sivers on Tim Ferriss's podcast a while back, and he said something really good that freed me up a lot, which is to look at your life in like 10-year increments. And I'm kind of right in the middle of that 10 years of being in business. And then who knows? After that, the next 10 years, maybe something completely different. Good attitude. I like that attitude. You look back at the Matt who was younger, and when you finished high school, let's say, um, career in sales, real estate was the first thing you did, or... Where did you go first? Uh, well, well, finishing high school is a bit of a strong, that's a bit of a strong word. Uh, so I was homeschooled. <laughs> I, I had one year, my junior year of high school, I actually went to, and, and this was not even a legit school. It was, it was our entire, all four grades fit into one classroom. So I had a really weird school experience. Okay. I left after my junior year and said, screw this, I'm going back to homeschooling. <laughs> I got a, ended up getting a GED, which is what you have to get yep. when you're homeschooled anyway. Yep. So I came out of it with a piece of paper and I've been working full time since I was essentially 14 and a half. Really? Like, literally getting as many hours as I could as uh, while the law prevented me from working full time. Uh, thank you, government. Uh, so I wasn't able to make the money that I wanted to make when I was 14, 15 years old, but I've been working ever since then. Um, <laughs> your dreams were being squelched at a young age. Your, exactly. Your entrepreneurial they, hopes. They were being squelched at a young age. <laughs> so what got you 
going with real estate then in particular? Uh, it was investing first and then got, then I realized that the investors typically on an, on an average house deal don't make as much as the salespeople do. That's mm-hmm. what got me thinking about that. Then I read the book that showed me the business model behind building a legit team. And I was very mm-hmm. fascinated with team building uh, and still am. That's actually what led to what I'm doing now. One of the podcasts that I launched and, and co-hosted for a long time was called the Team Building Podcast. And it's it's for real estate teams. Uh, that actually led to me begin, becoming sort of an unofficial uh, category king in podcasting in that very niche yeah. space. And I'll, there might, there's some stuff to say about that in a second. But How many years ago was this? When was this? Ooh, when I first started a real estate team? Yeah. Uh, so it would have been right around 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. Okay. All yeah. right. 06, 07. And the podcasting tied to that started when, how long ago? Three and a half. Right. Right. When, so that first, when I left my agency and became a consultant, that's what I did Okay, is I helped him launch his coaching consulting business. And the, the way that we marketed the business was the yeah. podcast that we launched. So in sales, there's a, there's a, um, there's a lot of people who, uh, espouse the importance of building your own brand as part of the sales process. Um, and books have been written on that very subject so that you can reduce your reliance on cold calling. Real estate has always been one of those to me, though, that has felt like personal branding is built into the model. I mean, you can't just be an extension of Century 21 or whomever. You you need to stand on your own two feet as a personal brand. Would, is that... Do you think that's true? Do you think that's, is that why podcasting seemed to be such a natural thing for you to do next? Or did you just have an interest in both things or? Um, okay. Well, so the podcasting that I did, this is one of the, the, the big, it led to one of the big pivots in my life was I realized that I had kind of built up a brand as a marketing expert for real estate people. And then realized that that was not at all remotely what I was interested in. Uh, one of the reasons why I love the team building, it led me to realizing that my core market was actually the business coaches and consultants who were teaching entrepreneurs how to build their businesses. Uh, And part of the problem with real estate and coming out of that world is you realize, and I realized this way back when I built my own team, is that most agents are actually terrible at marketing. Brand marketing is baked into real estate, but when they say brand marketing, mostly they're talking about taking pictures with their dog and sending out recipes to the mail. Um, it's the worst and lowest form. I just of made jokes about that the other day. Real estate agents and their dogs <laughs> in their photos easy. on their That's business right. cards. Yes, it's way with too cowboy hats. Oftentimes, with cowboy hat, very important, very important. Um, so yeah, so the, most of the branding, yeah, it's built in, but it's also terrible. And yeah. it's not actually based on any sustainable competitive advantage. In fact, there's a whole realtor association that's built seemingly to prevent any agent from making any claims that would differentiate them from other agents. Really? Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a and very yet, weird marketing environment. When it's all said and done, um, we as lay consumers, home buyers or whatever, are going to work with somebody who we relate to. Yeah. And the brand is sort of a um, peace of mind. Part of it, right? Yeah, most mostly in real estate, the brand is just that little reassurance that you're working for a legit company, and then everything exactly. else is who has the financially backed. But it's really about the person. Yeah, hundred percent about the person, which mm. is a very confining, by the way. Yeah, right. Because there's uh, and there's a great team leader who's a good example of this. She now teaches the expansion for Keller Williams and does uh, does the classes for that whole system. She found when she built her real estate team and she built in all of her marketing systems were based around her and her name and how awesome her system, like her, basically the, the marketing that she was doing. She went to go start another real estate team and it flopped, right? Because you can't, that's not transportable, right? Like you can't, there's only so much you can scale your marketing if it's based on how awesome you are. Um, and so that was one of the things that I noticed even before I launched my agency. And that's why 
I'm not super active on social media because yeah. the brand isn't about me. It's about podcasting and it's about the clients yeah. and it's not about how awesome I am. Yeah. And I learned that from watching real estate agents make that mistake. And the few that got it right, they figured out how to focus their marketing on their systems and how good the system was and yeah. then guaranteeing the results of the system. They're the ones that built sustainable businesses where they could actually exit the day-to-day and the clients were okay with it. So I know real estate is a um, important part of your life even today, right? Um, there's, there's, uh, you have your fingers in multiple things, real estate being one of them. Kind of, yes. I have one main show that I still actively co-host, Real Estate Uncensored, where yep. I own. On the backside of that, we have a real estate team nationwide with 50 plus agents and I have a 50% ownership stake in that team. Yep. That's it. Like I divested uh, <laughs> myself of every other finger and every other pie because at one point I realized and I, I was going down the track to where if anybody seemingly took a step in real estate, I made money off of it somehow. Um, I had my fingers in way too many pies. Let's put it that way. Well, it, I, I was, as I look best over your background, you have dabbled in um, a variety of industries that have made your um, perspective on branding, sales, uh, content um, really interesting that I think the average person probably wouldn't fully appreciate because you've had more than just a real estate background. Yeah, um, the same way. Like we both, we both <laughs> bounced around like all of it being like around marketing, yeah, you know, like yeah. sales and marketing, which right. is, which is cool. We both had that experience of, of, um, like, like trying to tackle this, the same general challenge, but in different environments, which, yeah, it does, it does change your perspective. There's a lot of, like, if you realize in, in real estate and a lot of industries, there's a ton of navel gazing. Have you ever noticed that many of the problems people calling with on this show can be solved by hiring someone? Sometimes you need a full-fledged team, other times maybe just a simple assistant or an expert in something you're not great at. Whatever your reason for hiring, we recommend you take a look at LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. As you may know already, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn Jobs makes the process of finding the perfect teammate easy and intuitive. Hiring is always easy when you have access to so many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours when using LinkedIn Jobs. I've used it myself, and it was so simple. In fact, I've made multiple hires using LinkedIn Jobs, and did I mention, by the way, it's free to business owners like me and you. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash freelance. That's linkedin.com slash freelance to post your job for free or click the link in our show description. Terms and conditions apply. You know, working from home is mostly great, but there are some days when I realize I haven't left my house or even my chair like all day. Have you been there? Getting outside to exercise or making a trip to the gym are just harder now that my office is just a flight of stairs away. If you're stuck in the same rut as me, then you should try Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W. With the Hydro rower and 20 minutes a day, getting a full body workout is so much easier. Hydro can work up to 86% of your muscles in just 20 minutes for an insane effective home workout. That's because Hydro pairs the effectiveness of rowing with the power of technology to connect you with over 5,000 video trainings, classes, and workouts. And get ready to get out from behind your home desk because after a few months of daily rowing with Hydro, your partner's going to want to take you out for a night on the town to show you off. This spring, join the growing rowing community at Hydro. Head over to Hydro.com and use code FREELANCE to save up to $400 off your Hydro. 
That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com and promo code freelance to save $400. Hydro.com promo code freelance or just click the link in our show description. Very, very few people are looking outside of their industry for the answers. Yeah. They're, looking, they're not looking for fresh ideas or anything new no. elsewhere. It's just what can I do in my, yeah, in my constraints? What monkey do and what can I do that's a slight edge over what the other guy's doing? And that's, yeah, it's a, that is a trap. So a few years ago, you started doing the podcasting thing yeah. <laughs> with real estate and um, something clicked for you. Obviously, you, you, you must have felt like this is, I, I need to be doing this. Yes. Um, I think it really started with the relationships that I started to build with the people who came on the show and they, and their exposure to me started to generate opportunities where they were coming to me and going, Hey, I have this business idea. What do you think about jumping into it with me? And I'm like, and, and to wow. clarify, and to clarify, this is, this is, yeah. this is podcasting. You were still, still focused on real estate podcasting yeah, back yeah, then, right? Like yeah. The yes. Yeah. Of that show. Would right. Come to me right. With like, yeah. Coaching yep. products, info products, books that they wanted but the to write together. But the wheels start spinning like in that. your mind that getting outside of real estate to podcasting as a business model for you personally, mm-hmm. those wheels are turning. Um, actually no, not until, uh, my mentor, the guy who ran the agency that I came out of, he came to me and he said, look, I see what you're doing with the podcast. By that time I had launched the team building podcast. So I was hosting a couple of them and I, I think I was maybe producing one other one or something like that. Uh, he came to me and said, look, uh, we need to break uh, the, you know, this agency out of being stuck in real estate. There's four other industries I have my eyes on. Will you help me launch podcasts in each of those four? and get all the top influencers in those spaces on as guests. I'm like, sure, we'll try it. Well, it goes insanely well. We got 100 top influencers across those four industries on their podcast within like three or four months. Like they didn't didn't even have to keep doing the podcast. They had all the relationships they needed. In fact, their biggest client to date came off of a podcast that I launched in the executive recruiting space for them. And it was a referral from one of the guests. And he came to me about three months in. He said, look, dude, like you're consulting, you're doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You're doing some info products and real estate and stuff like that. You've got ownership in this, you got ownership in that. He's like, he's like, this is what people want. Like people like this is what you should be doing. You should package that. Like you've been looking for the one thing. I'm telling you, this is the one thing. Um, and so I had been thinking about it, but that really cinched it. Like somebody that I really respected coming along and confirming not only just that it worked, but that the demand was there. There's that focus word though. Um, you didn't use the word, but it sure feels like that's the moment where the focus kind of kicked into gear a little bit. Yeah, exactly. That's when I decided it's not about sticking in one industry necessarily and trying to maximize and have 17 different ways to make money because I realized that that was a, it was a manifestation of a scarcity mindset. What I was doing was I was going, okay, here are the people who are right in front of me. How can I make sure that I have something to sell them no matter what? Rather than going, no, I'm going to focus on selling the one thing, and then I'm going to go find the people who are the perfect fit for that one thing, and I'm going to be the best at doing that one thing. Uh, And so that in itself was a big shift. I realized that once I realized that I was doing that out of scarcity and fear, it wasn't out of abundance. It was just trying to take advantage of what was right in front of me rather than what was out there. That's when I really made that mental shift to go, okay, no, I need to really zero in. and, and, And now the challenge is just finding what is the right package for my podcast service that's going to appeal to the person that I want to work with. All right. I hit the pause button on the interview here just to highlight that quick takeaway. 
Matt did a great job of setting up this business where he didn't just look at what he wanted to offer clients. He reversed that view. He looked at it at how could he or should he bundle his services so that his ideal client would be attracted to his service. What a really smart way of looking at this. All right, back to the interview. So um, I think I think about where podcasting was, let's call it three and a half years ago. And um, it's dramatically different than where it is today. Um, it's even dramatically different than where it was one year ago. Um, it seems like there's been a tidal wave of activity just in the last year or so. So what told you to trust what your mentor said three and a half years ago, that this should be your one thing? Because the the numbers didn't suggest that back then as far as the percentage of people that, how many podcasts exist? The percentage yeah. of Americans or even worldwide people who had listened to a podcast was pretty limited. So mm-hmm. uh, what told you that this is the risk you should take? <laughs> um, well, a couple of things. So number one was the fact that I didn't launch my podcast first as a podcast. It was actually a YouTube live series. So I saw the growth in the audience. In fact, up until maybe a year in, maybe even longer into our show, quote unquote, two-thirds of our audience was on YouTube. And so I was looking at podcasting as one of the distribution methods and not as the thing. And to me, I think that's still the case. I, I'm still 100% sold on the, the idea that the word podcasting will go away. I mean, we're already to the point where nobody under the age of 25 knows why it's called podcasting because they never had an iPod and they don't care. Uh, and that's fine. So I think podcasting, the word will go away, which is why you won't find the word podcast in any of my, like I didn't put it in my company name, for example. Um, and so I was looking at it with a very unique perspective. I wasn't coming, I have no allegiance to podcasting. My yeah. allegiance is to having a marketing platform that puts a clear and compelling idea into the world and basing it primarily on video. And podcasting is just one option for how you consume the content. So I was coming at it from a completely different angle and I'm not looking to build up mass audiences. So I wasn't concerned with mass adoption. All I cared about was Do the people who are at the cream of the crop of an industry who have the most money to spend on coaching, consulting, and creative services, where are they going to find the people they're going to write a check to? Mm -hmm. And that was two places. It was already podcasts and it was YouTube. Mm -hmm. So as long as you were in those two places and you have the right thing to sell to the right person who has the money to pay you, that was already working. And so to me, the explosion of like popularity or mainstream whatever that podcasting is experiencing, to me, it's a bonus. The people who deeply care about the problems in their business, they figured out podcasting five years ago. Like they were already there. So why not go the YouTube route? Because it seems the YouTube route three and a half years ago would have been more obvious to me than the podcasting route. Good question. We did both. Um, So podcasting and YouTube together has always been part of my recommended strategy for clients. So we've never not done YouTube because of how successful it was for me. Um, We've always encouraged people to do, as soon as live video became available, especially on Facebook, uh, we started encouraging all of our clients to do it. Some do and some don't, depending on- tell you some stories on that, some really Uh, good stories on that, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, I I love live video. And my my original show is still live. In fact, we were were live three days a week, now we're down to one um, for various reasons. But anyway, yeah, like we've, we've both had, so it's both, it it wasn't an either or choice and you chose one path necessarily. Yeah. And, but, and this is key for anyone who's like a freelancer that has like some of those big, like crossroads decisions of like, where where are you going to lean into? Um, there's a great book about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And the title of it is awesome. It's basically don't tell me where I'm going to die. 
so that I don't go there. <laughs> it's a book of uncommon common sense. <laughs> and they said something to the effect of um, like, well, look, when we make investments, you know, like everybody else is betting on something to change. We bet only on what doesn't change. And I don't remember at one point I ran across that quote, but that made a big difference. I, I don't build my business mm. hoping that some key thing changes. Mm -hmm. I build the business on what I know won't change. And if we adapt along the way to the changes that come, while the core of the business is based around the stuff that doesn't change, then I know I've got a great sustainable business that, that, that'll last 20, 30, 40 years if I wanted to. That's a wise one. Um, I see that being a call out already. I'm already seeing that as a call out from the episode. Oh, like is a, a, yeah, like that's my lead. Yeah, that's yeah. my lead. That might very well be my lead. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let's let's dig into the business itself, pursuing yeah. results. So you find, you you found, uh, you you start pursuing results. And what are the, the, the concept, the value proposition is what? How would you, in a concise way, describe back then what the value prop was? The value prop was to get more clients from podcasting. And that doesn't necessarily mean being a podcaster, but being a part of podcasting, being a guest, um, being what have you. No, we were always on the, we were mostly on the, uh, on the production side of uh, producing yeah. podcasts. I did have some people that wanted to pay me to get them to just book guests for their show. That didn't work. Um, and, and to a limited extent, I had, did have some people going like, Hey, can you get me booked on podcasts? And I tinkered around with that in the very early days. Um, again, going back to like having a sustainable business, one of my big crossroads was, do I offer that as part of the core service or not? And I mean, we're talking about outbound, yep. outbound guest pitching. Um, I made the decision not to, because it wasn't something we could directly control. And it's funny, I just, I had a really interesting conversation with a gal that I hired to do some part-time work here a couple of months ago. And she's doing like a lot of freelancers and agency creatives and whatnot. She's doing like social media management and marketing for small businesses and trying to prove that she can get ROI in terms of real engagement. Well, that's one of the hardest problems to solve in the world. Yeah. And, the, and it's a moving target that yep. never, ever stops moving. Yep. And it's something you can't directly control. Like the only way you can control it, if you can control it at all, is just by being really, really freaking good at writing content that gets people to engage. And, but like, like I said, that's a moving target. Uh, and so I basically told her, I'm like, look, you can't, like you just can't, you can't build a, a sustainable business on something you can't control. And mm -hmm. that was something I learned very well from my mentor and, and carried it over into mine. So that's one of those filters that I used like to make decisions on what went into the core service was what is the thing that we can control? We like, I can control getting you two guests a month who are influencers in your space. I know I can find them, especially if I limit where I sell my service into to the industries that I know. Right. Uh, I know we can produce a podcast. If you show up and record something, <laughs> I can put it out as a podcast. Uh, and I know that we can control the email marketing and announcing the podcast on social media. I don't make any promises about the engagement that we get sure. because I can't control that. Yep. I can control the fact that we're going to promote it on social media, but I don't make any promises on engagement. And so I just learned- There's something that they God, have to bring to that. the table. <laughs> you, you can control all the operational issues. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do the stuff that we can control. Right. That's, right. And that's what we sell is just the stuff that we can control. But if the person's not interesting at all, well, there's not much you can do about that. There is not much <laughs> that you can do about that. Yes. Okay, um, so so where did you go for clients? You start the company, you have the idea for what the value prop is, and who do you decide is the ideal customer slash client for pursuing results? 
So initially it was real estate influencers Go that where you expanded know. a little bit to like mortgage and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. that was fine. Over time, I zeroed in, I zeroed in on it. It, was, it wasn't that long ago because the business is three, a little over three years. So last yep. summer, <clears throat> I really narrowed down that the ideal client wasn't just a real estate influencer. It wasn't just someone who was a leader in the industry that had something to sell or even something to say. Uh, it was someone who was doing legitimate, high-level business coaching or consulting in one of those key industries that I had some knowledge mm. of. And so we've expanded a little bit in the sense that we can take on someone who's in the recruiting space or if, you, if you're in chiropractic or whatever, but it's because it's not about speaking to the public. I don't care about the public. We, like podcasting, if you, the, like the fastest way to build a legitimate six or seven-figure income stream off of a podcast is to skip the many and go straight to the few. All right, so that's another record scratch moment that I had to pause and jump in here. Did you catch that? Skip the many and go straight to the few. That's a more clever way of saying niche down or niche down with your target audience and you're more likely to succeed. All right, back to the interview again. Right, who are the few? Who's the cream of the crop of the industry that'll pay you and write you a $3,000 check to come to your event to get an inside look at your business systems? Like those are the people that I wanted to work with. And so it matters a little bit less like what industry they're in. It was like a, uh, what would you call that? Like a psychographic profile. It was a coach consultant. Not the demographic profile. Yeah, it wasn't a demographic. It was very much like, are they they selling high-level B2B coaching consulting to other people? Are they an influencer? And then do they have a long-term outlook who can handle the 12 to 18 month ramp up time that it really takes to feel comfortable and feel the momentum, the, like the momentum of right. podcasting. Like, you know, it, it just takes a while. And it's not like oh, good things yeah. aren't happening under the surface. There's a discomfort phase for oh, sure. Hell yeah. Yes. yeah. And in a variety of different like topics, there's the technical, there's the on air stuff, all of that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 And we take care of like the technical stuff. Like we just tell clients to record on zoom and we send them a microphone. So we pretty much remove all the technical aspects of it. Um, and what's funny about that is it really quickly exposes the fact that the technical stuff is not the real objection. It's the on-air. We could, air we could have a whole other conversation about that. Uh, one. I know, I know, we could. <laughs> yeah, you've you've been through that whole that whole journey. Uh, yeah. The same thing. So, yeah. so finding clients was it difficult? What did you What did you, in a practical, concrete way, do to reach out to clients and find them? Yes. Okay. So obviously, you had the the base of it came by referral, word of mouth, and inviting people onto my own podcast. Right? And how did you decide what you were going to charge? Like, it's one thing to qualify them from a psychographic, demographic, whatever standpoint, what they bring to the table, but how do you determine, what should I get paid for this? Well, what's funny is initially I started charging the same thing that my old agency charged. Then I realized that I needed, like the package that I put together that was sellable at that level was an every other week podcast. And yeah. that just didn't work as well as I wanted it to. Yeah. And so I realized that we had to essentially double the level. So I just doubled the price. Yeah. Uh, then I doubled the price again. Um, and that, that, that was where I actually got to the point where it was a sustainable thing. And, and David Baker makes a great point in, in the book, The Business of Expertise. And he talks about people that have two different types of confidence. He says, there's the people that come right out of the gate and they just believe they're worth it and they charge high prices right out of the gate. I was the opposite. I didn't know I was worth it. And, I, and legitimately, I wasn't because I didn't have the expertise that I have now. Yeah. So uh, David Baker points out that, look, if you're the 90% of people who fall into that category where you don't, you're not comfortable charging something you don't know if you can deliver, he said, that's fine. Just make sure you have more, a little bit more opportunity than you have capacity. So it's just a matter of generating more leads. It's that power to turn down the wrong person that gives you the confidence to say no yep. and start raising your prices. And that's what happened to me. I started getting to the point where I didn't need the money 
And then I was able to start getting choosier on the, the types of clients that I took on. That's when I was able to comfortably start raising the price authentically yeah. knowing, look, it's not worth it. Like if you're a pain in my butt, it's literally not worth it for me to take you on as a client. So the only way I'm taking you on is A, you pay me more and B, you're an awesome client. You'll weed out all of the, the cruft, I guess. Yes, exactly. It's not lost on me, by the way. I have to point this out. We've always done this podcast remote. Okay. This is the one and only time we've done it face to face ever. Is it really? And it is, and so it's not well, lost it on me that we first with a Pac Man machine. <laughs> we have a guy playing Ms. Pac Man in the background, so um, that that's that's just too much fun right there. <laughs> it makes me think of all of the uh, podcast friends that I have who run shows in the most strange of locations that have to deal with. I know. And background so noises. Cooler. See, now, finally, finally, we're cool podcasters because we have something fun so. going on in the background. so. Show. You haven't lived until you've had to deal with uh, background noise right. and background distractions. Okay, that's just too fun. All right, so, so you have determined who your best clients are. You've determined how to charge them. You started reaching out to them. Um, oh, yeah. Let me give you something yeah. purely tactical, right? Um, because this is something that anybody can do, whether you're in podcasting or not. One of the things that I found that worked amazingly well, like gangbusters, was... Uh, just forming a handful or a couple handfuls of relationships with other podcast hosts. And then I would go through LinkedIn and I did a search for my ideal types of clients. So, which is pretty easy, like business coaches oh, yeah. and consultants. Those sure. are, those are keywords that are easy to find. So I got a list, uh, built a list, started going through it and I would just reach out to them with a LinkedIn message or I'd find their email and send them an email. Very, very simple message. Hey, stumbled across you. We're connected on LinkedIn through John and Sarah. I was just talking to Sarah the other day. She's awesome. Um, and I just thought, I like I dug into your background, your profile a little bit. I thought you'd be a good guest on a, a show that's run by a friend of mine. Um, you know, would you mind? I don't know if you want to jump on a quick call and see if it's a good fit. But if it, if it is, I'm happy to make an introduction. Freaking gangbusters. Like, it's the easiest pitch in the world. You're not selling them anything. And you can you can scale that pretty easily. You can absolutely scale yeah. it. Yeah, 100%. Okay. So the hit rate's pretty decent. Uh, yeah. So if you reach in, like reach out purely by LinkedIn, like if it's a really well worded message and it's coming from you and not from some VA in the Philippines, uh, four or five out of 10, sometimes higher. Uh, once if you're reaching out on the behalf of your, and you're mentioning a podcast that has more credibility or you're able to drop a name that you know that they know and that you genuinely know that person, the better the mutual connection, the better the hit rate. All right, jumping in yet again here with uh, a requirement that you go back and hear that section one more time on what his LinkedIn outreach strategy was and his strategy for leveraging referrals, mutual connections, and even recommendations of people that he should talk to. Great section on there. And back to the interview. Yeah. So you do this for how long before you start hitting walls? <laughs> when, when did you realize oh, that this is harder than you? Like it seems everything always seems easy at first. I shouldn't say that. You come up with a new business idea that maybe isn't uh, mainstream, and it seems like it's easy because it's so blue ocean, right, in nature. And um, you get some initial momentum. Things sound great, but they always hit a grind. They always hit a, a wall at some point in time. Did you hit something yeah. like that? You know, I would say more on the operations front than I mm. did on the sales and marketing front, which I which I know is a is a little bit of a cop out, but for anyone who's a freelancer listening, I want to explain why, because I think you can replicate what I did, which will make sales and marketing easier, even as it makes the operations harder. So I didn't really hit a wall where I had this like center of influence. And as soon as I maxed out the center of influence, I hit a wall. That's what happens to most coaches. I knew that was potentially coming. That actually didn't happen to me because I didn't have a big center of influence. And I had a very, something that was very unique 
to sell. And so it kept spreading beyond my center of influence. When you, when you hit that wall and you basically max out your center of influence, to me, that's an indicator that you don't really have a clear and compelling idea. What you have is a compelling relationship and people want to get in a relationship with you. And as soon as you exhaust your centers of influence and you start having to market to a cold audience that has no relationship, they're not interested. Because when you tell them what you do, it, it doesn't stand out so clearly and compellingly that they immediately want to talk to you. Sure. Right. They have to get to know you first. Right. You there's no tie. There's no bond or gotta, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You got to like, you got to like, they got to hear you speak for 20 minutes sure. before they're interested. So I didn't have that. So what I did have was I had a clear and compelling idea of, you know, we can, we basically produce your podcast and book your guests and basically help you own and dominate a niche if you're a B2B consultant or a coach. Well, that spread among those types of people because that was rare. And it still is. There's only a, a couple competing companies that do anything remotely close and they don't do any of the guest booking. So I still have that competitive advantage that that has maintained. And that, I believe that's sustainable over the long term. So what that did is that solved the problem of not hitting that wall of my centers of influence because I had a clear, a clear and compelling idea. What it did create, though, is that at, because I didn't hit that wall, the wall that I did hit was operationally. It broke my business, right? I hit a certain point where I took on another group of clients and it broke the operations of the business. Is that from a focus standpoint or from a procedural standpoint? Scale, scaling of operations, yeah, scaling, processes? Scaling the operations, okay. uh, systems and processes and having the right people in the right roles. So I had to switch and specialize. That seems kind of standard though. It seems to me that most entrepreneurs who start a business that then gets traction will have things start to break before they force themselves to create processes that they could hand off to somebody else to do. Yeah, that's, yes, that is typical. Um, I didn't have that issue because I knew I needed systems and processes out of the gate. Okay. And so I had, when, when, this, when the business broke operationally, I already had a team in place and they were all running systems already. What I had was I had, um, what, would I, what would I call it? I just had the wrong team structure and people were, Roles? The, the roles were unfocused. Yeah. I had people doing two or three different things in the business. And what I realized what I, was that I needed to specialize everyone and build very, very clear walls between them on what they were doing uh, so that everybody specialized. And yeah. then when I did that, that, that changed everything and allowed us to handle the growth and allowed us to, to scale up more. So I think this is regardless of whether you're doing podcasting or web design or something. There's a time when the business has grown to a point where you can't personally do tasks one, two, and three. You have to offload those to someone else. Uh, how did that happen for you? How did you decide, I don't know, what was best done by you and what, what needed to be done by you versus those things that you needed to do immediately get off your plate? Uh, well, for, well, first, the simple thing, and this is another thing I took from my, my mentor who ran the agency I came out of, was the, the handoff system is I do it, we do it, you do it. And I never skipped those steps in the early days. Now, now I'm getting to the point where I might, I need to hire specialists to maybe revamp some systems and, you know, I'm saying they may know more about it than I do. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, beginning, I knew enough to where it was, I do it, we do it, and then you do it. So I never handed anything off mm -hmm. unless, unless it was something I did myself, built a system for myself, then figured out where the decisions and the resources were that somebody else would need to take it over. I yeah. built those two things and then I was able to handle it off or hand it off. So that, that process that I learned from my mentor made all the difference. And as long as I didn't skip steps, everything in the handoff process was fine. Now, in terms of what I decided to hand off, the filter was, uh, and I don't think I articulated it this way. I would, I would articulate it now this way. 
which is where does my involvement change the outcome? If me being involved doesn't tangibly change the outcome, then I'm not important in that process. Mm. So you mean like qualitatively? Qualitatively, yeah. yes. And not and not just by a little, yeah. by, by yeah. orders of magnitude. magnitude. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, for example, one of the very last things that I handed off, and this is in the early days, uh, was the show notes. I was writing all the show notes because I'm a writer. I, I enjoy writing. I don't mind it. Uh, but it did get to the point, and I think every business owner experiences this, where even the stuff that you love, you stop loving if it becomes just part of the business. It's a chore, yeah. It's, yeah, it became a chore. And well, and so, so the hour you spend writing those show notes, really, what's the value? Oh, it's insane. Like, yeah, the hour spent, any hour you spend operationally in the business you, is like writing away 10 hours worth of marketing yep. or something. Yeah, so that was one of the things that, I, one of the last things that I handed off. It was one of the toughest things to hand off, but I found somebody who could do it at 80 or 90% of my quality level. And now she's just as good, but I had to deal with that little bit of dip in quality first, and everybody does, and everybody complains about it. Everybody gets uptight about it. And, oh, like the clients will never tolerate that. Like, think again. They don't care. And I'm not saying they don't care about quality. What they don't care about is you doing it anywhere near as much as you think they care about you doing it. So what are the different tasks that you have among different team members, contributors today? What are, how do you slice? Slice does dice, what? baby. Yeah. Okay. So specialist, basically the, produ- the, the podcast system is a production line uh, with now. And then I hired the overseer. Right, so that's my director of operations. Like a project manager, basically, right? Yeah, essentially like like an operations manager, customer service type of person. So initially that was me, and then I had the specialist roles underneath me of like video editing, audio editing, show notes. Now it's expanded to where we have, I hired that out to where I have the operations manager, and he has an operations assistant who does the functional stuff. And then we still have those specialist roles, but each of them are now uh, more than one person. And so now we're separating it into pods, of creative teams and each handle about half of our clients. So um, a person will be assigned yeah. to a client. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So that's, um, and basically the way that the, the overall like filter for what I do is I realized, I don't know, two years ago or something. So this is like a year into running the company that the business actually only needed three things from me and what it needed from me because of my skill sets were strategy, copywriting, and at the time project management. And it still needs project management in the sales and marketing. It doesn't need me for project management in the operations anymore because I hired somebody to replace me. The only way I had the margin to do that was by raising prices, uh, which is which. That's where freelancers a lot of times get caught up is they stop at that point. They won't raise their prices out of fear, and then they're na- never able to replace themselves right. in that, cr- or that key point. Or they're too married to the actual doing of the work. Um, they they. I almost want to say they get too married to the doing of the work. Um, and love the work instead of remembering why they wanted to start doing it for themselves versus doing it for someone else. Like anybody can find a job doing creative work, right? Um, but I think sometimes freelancers forget why they're a freelancer instead of an employee. They're doing it because they wanted to build their own business. And maybe they didn't want to become a millionaire from it, but they wanted to do something for themselves. Yeah. But now here they are dealing with all the minutiae that, that they were trying to avoid. Some. Well, definitely not dealing, doing the, just the fun part. Um, I will say, who was it? Um, it was the founders of uh, 37 Signals and Basecamp and the guys that wrote Rework. They did say something really good, which is that, look, if you like the work, keep doing the work. Um, just limit it to just the part that you actually love and don't do it because the business forces you to. Do it because you love it. So like, you know, Derek Sivers keeps building a CD baby. He set up management systems so he didn't have to do any of the stuff that he didn't like, which is all the people-y stuff. 
and it lets him go off and code the next generation of the website. Right. Well, and sometimes that might owner codes their own site. Well, he did. He does. Yeah. But that's because he's classified that. Not, he hasn't classified that as low value work. Whereas some entrepreneurs may. It is for me. Think that is commoditized work, right? Yeah. And, and in fact, yeah, many entrepreneurs may do that, but he finds joy in doing that. Yeah. Well, and, and if you're good at it and if the entire future of the business rests on it, maybe it's not low value work, right. but, it, but it starts with whether you love it and have a high level skill set to where it actually makes a difference if you do it versus if somebody else does it that you could pay way less than you. And if it doesn't move the outcome, if it doesn't change the outcome, which for most people it doesn't then there's no sense in continuing to do it. Your, your time is better served in the sales and marketing. Yep. If you, there's a, um, a really good essay on Farnham Street, um, it's the amateur, I don't know, I'm going to say it's called The Amateur Versus the Professional. And it's this long essay that talks about a different perspective from which the amateur views things versus the professional at anything. It's not, it's not talking about a specific endeavor or a specific skill or, you know, um, uh, job task or anything, and and it gets into that fa- that issue of how you view things will either dramatically curtail what you get out of it, mm-hmm. but could energize what you get out of it in other ways. Like you might find a great deal of joy doing a certain task. Mm-hmm. You just need to know that you're trading something for that. You're trading business growth. Yes. You're trading yeah. financial independence or something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Opportunity cost. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what drove the point home for me was the opportunity cost. I realized that I was sacrificing the growth of the business just because I was continuing to like keep myself enmeshed in the operations. Uh, and, and again, like just here recently that like to set us up for the next iteration of the business, which is to shift to more like strategy and uh, training rather than just handling all the implementation, we're having to go through that again. So I'm bringing on a project manager for the marketing side right? Because even I need to be babysat sometimes. And I'm good at babysitting, but not with myself, apparently. I always laugh at people who, uh, and I, I don't laugh at them, but I laugh at the idea of this magical synergy that comes when you run, like when you're a freelance marketer or you run a marketing agency as if, well, we'll just like, we've got free labor. We can just do like, well, man, our marketing is going to kill because like we've, I mean, we're a marketing agency after all. Like, no, like you are the last on the totem pole. Nothing will get done right. Nothing will get done consistently. It's the cobbler's shoes. It's the, it's the infamous story, the cobbler's shoes, right? The cobbler's or the cobbler's kids who go without shoes. But, um, so pursuing results has, uh, led to you having your own podcast that you run UX. Yep. And I think you're about 80 episodes into that with some ish extraordinary guests. Like you've had some uh, amazing business builders on this, um, on, uh, on your own journey with your podcast. What are some, any interviews or conversations or even themes that have stood out to you in talking to some of these people that especially as it bleeds into how you run your own business, which is a podcasting business? Um, Yes. So I came out of an agency that was 100% sell the implementation, give the strategy away for free. I was very much a big believer in that. Um, You sell the doing, you give the thinking away for free because then that adds value and builds the moat around the clients. And that does work, believe me. My my mentor lives a great lifestyle running that that type of agency and he is happy as a clam. Uh, He lives on Coronado. Um, He's doing just fine. But what I learned is that the really smart people like the HubSpot, Diamond and Platinum agency level guys, the guys that are running really innovative teams and doing innovative things for other people, they're all shifting away from the doing to selling the thinking and maybe the training so that other people can do. That made a big impact. I was already keeping my eye on that development, but when I started talking to 
just over and over and over again, all these guys going, look, we're getting out of the implementation, out of the implementation, out of the implementation. So if like, if you're a freelancer listening, just know, like if you're in the marketing arena, the rest of the world is coming for you and they charge a lot less than you do. And they're, you think they're not as good as you do. Think again, they're probably better. Uh, and so there's a, there's a constant like downward pressure on that. So what do you do with it? Well, you got, you got to get smart. You got to start selling the strategy, which means you got to know not what needs to be done and be able to do it. You need to understand why something needs to be done and who should be doing it and the who shouldn't be you. So that's like, if there's anything I've learned from the podcast, it's just like how to set myself up for the next iteration of the business. Right. Your, your podcast features people, um, who have a specific expertise in something, um, Diverse backgrounds, but specific expertise. But I noticed that you do splice in episodes from time to time where it's you just speaking to your listeners. You did one on content recently and talked about the difference between being a content creator along the lines of a Simon Sinek versus a a Simon Sinek versus a (laughs) uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Two ways to win the game. And um, I have very strong opinions about... uh, those personalities, um, which I'll reserve for another day. (laughs) But um, did that come from your conversations, from your own experience? Um, And, and, you know, we'll include a a link or something so that people can get that episode especially. Mm -hmm. But um, that, that idea of you being an expert in something and not just doing the work, but contributing something from a content standpoint so people can get a, a feel for who you are besides a portfolio page, you know, if you're a, whether you're a um, web designer or a software program or whatever it is, does that, did that come from your own experience? Is it outcome of interviews? Well, all the above. And I will say this, bring it all the way back, way, way, way back to the background. Um, I started studying theology at like age eight and reading books from the 1800s about theology. I, th- I think one of the unintended consequences besides making me, you know, less of a happy child, um, was, uh, uh, one of the unintended side effects is I got good at putting concepts together and seeing things w- like where they don't match. Um, Dan Sullivan from strategic concept, like strategic coach is the one that put that skill set the best way I've ever heard it, which is the ability to put concepts together is how he phrases it. Um, so I always lean to strategy over execution, Mm -hmm. why you do something rather than what you're doing. So that like that episode specifically, like when I look at the world and I look at someone like a Simon Sinek who has something very clear and compelling to say and doesn't need to be on social media every day to get his ideas to spread versus a Gary Vaynerchuk who has a different message, but it's not that compelling. It's clear. Anyone can out hustle your competition using social media. Great. That's fine. Not really all that compelling, not that different. In fact, there's a whole lot of other people saying the same thing, but he crowds them out by the sheer volume and a different, little bit different style, right? Um, and there's a lot we could say, believe me, you, you and I could probably do an entire episode on just the strategic teardown of those two polar opposites of how do you build influence? Yeah. Very, very, very different. Um, but all of it came from all the interviews, all the stuff that I've done, watching what people pay attention to, uh, which those guys do. And I tend to lean towards and favor, look, if you're going to get into the game and you're going to put content into the market, say something clear and compelling and shut up until you have some, that something. Well, not, not, not that you can't say something until you have it, but if you, if you are talking, that should be the goal. Like, let's get to something clear and compelling as quickly as possible. Um, so it's not that you can't talk until you have that, but the world's a lot better place if you do have something clear and compelling to say. And then maybe you don't have to be on social media as much 
to stand out because your idea stands out, not the sheer volume of content that you produce. That, that's what I think of when I think of Gary Vaynerchuk is that notion of that the volume with which you talk to me has <laughs> it drowns out what you're wanting to say to me. You know what I mean? That's kind of my I do. Well, here take away is from a, a one one uh, semi-final thing. Um, I believe that archetypes is the new geography. The way to separate yourself as a service professional or as a freelancer used to be, hey, I'm the only guy in Omaha, Nebraska that does this. So like, if you want this done, like, I got to show up to your office and like, I live 15 minutes away. That doesn't exist anymore. But what does exist is archetypes, right? You are the rebel. You're the architect. You're the hero. You're the king. You're whatever. Like, and Gary Vaynerchuk is a certain type of archetype, and he's going to attract his tribe and repel everyone else because that's exactly what he did is he turned the volume up way up on his personality. And so he's going to polarize anybody who loves him or hates him. And that's a good thing. And he's personally fine. And he's perfectly fine with that. Exactly. He's perfectly fine. Yep. He's fine yep. with that. I'm fine with that. He's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I don't hold that against him either. That, so that, that, that comes back to your business and pursuing yeah. results. The goal ultimately is to allow people to position themselves the way they want to be positioned in the minds of yes. their target audience by sharing their message in their way. There's not a cookie cutter approach to it. There, there is not. The fastest way to success is just figure out what your clear and compelling idea is and then build a marketing platform like a podcast that allows you to hammer that into the marketplace. And that's, you mentioned the solo episodes that I've, uh, that I intersperse into my podcast. It used to be like one every six. Now it's one and one, one guest episode, one solo episode, because I, like, I don't want my, my message to get lost in the guests. You don't want to simply be the facilitator no. of the message. No, you don't. Nobody pays Barbara Walters for high level coaching and consulting. They go to, they go to her show to cry on camera, uh, but nobody's asking her to coach them on how to grow their business because she's an interviewer. you like, you don't want to be in the position of just being the interviewer. Yeah. You want to drive home your clear and compelling idea uh, and be very polarizing and attract your people because they're the ones that are going to write you a check anyway. So who cares about everybody else? What do you love most about the business today? It's a good question. I love the battle for ideas. I really do. That I, I love it. Before you and I got together today, I had a couple of hours, like a chunk of time that freed up on my calendar. And, and I'm working on a book. And the part of the book that I love is working out the ideas, right? I want every page of that book. If you pick up a book from me, which you will eventually will, I'll have a book at some point for you guys. Um, but if you pick up a book, I want you to be able to go to a page, read that page and go, holy, what? Wow, holy cow, like where in the hell did that come from? Because I want the idea to be so clear and compelling that it jumps off the page and it makes you think. And when you walk away, you do something differently because of, of having read that page. So I love that like business is this battle for ideas. It is a battle for perception in the minds of the people that we want to impact. And the, this battle for attention that we're all fighting is really a battle for influence. And it's a battle where the only ones who determine the winners is the minds of the people that we're trying to serve and impact. And that's the only thing that determines who wins. Your goal with the book sounds very rework-like. I love that. Book. In that you're, you, you just digest one page. Uh, one, you know, the chapters are what, two and a half pages each. Yeah, <laughs> you di you that, digest yeah. one page and you feel like, I could, I could, I could build a game plan off this one page. Final, final couple of questions. Uh, where's podcasting going and where, where do you, for your business purposes, how do you see you're going to have to evolve? How do you see, you know, two to five years down the road, what's going to have mm -hmm. to change about how you do what you do? 
Well, I think the process of getting somebody on a, as a guest on a podcast is going to be infinitely easier. Uh, there's people that are building technology to facilitate the process of finding and booking guests, which is great. It doesn't solve the human element of it, but it helps. Um, so that process will get easier. It, the process of splitting content out into a million different pieces might get a lot easier. Stuff like that, I think, will change. The fundamental of the business won't change, which is you still want... Like the, the formula will still work, whether it's weekly or not. The formula of a blend of conversations, authentic, real conversations with other influencers will never not be a benefit. Solo episodes where you speak directly to the audience and deliver your message like a weekly sermon to a church, that will never not be a benefit. Um, case studies where you talk to your clients about the systems and tools that are working, that you have taught them, that they've implemented, that will never not, that, like, that will never go away. Those things will never go away. The tactics and tools will change. The strategy of building a marketing platform that positions you and communicates a clear and compelling idea to the audience of people that you want to impact, that won't change. And so what I'm prepared for is the tactics and tools to change and the technology to make certain things that right now there's a lot of friction in. That friction might be gone five years from now. But the, the, the friction of the humanity part of it, the strategy the implementation and stuff like that. That's part of why I'm shifting away from, hey, we do this for you because the machines might do everything for us five years from now. And that would be a great thing. So I want to position my agency to where we're selling the thing that's still going to be needed five years from now, which is the strategy and the implementation, not the doing. And the positioning. I would think uh, anybody can hop on a microphone and interview somebody from their target audience and and uh, and call it a podcast uh, or share their expertise and call it a podcast. But it's another thing to have... Um, a position in your market when there are 15 other people doing that, 50 other people, a hundred other people doing that. Yeah. Everything is so much easier if you're the first person to do something or you're the first person to take something into a new niche. As soon as there's two or three people in it, like you have to be able to look somebody in the eye and tell them why you're different. Otherwise you're sunk. And it's just a matter of time until the business stops growing. So from $0 agency really to numerous six figures. Can you hit the seven figure mark with this? Yeah. Um, if I wanted to keep scaling it up, yes. Uh, I don't know that I want to make seven figures off this. I don't want to make seven figures off this business model because I'd have to have four account managers all reporting directly to me. That sounds terrible. Um, so let me I, just, you, you just said you don't want to make seven figures off this business model. Yeah. Not off this business model. Yes. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, you would rather Instead, do what? Go on with that. <laughs> uh, books, speaking, consulting, uh, and selling higher dollar strategy packages to help people launch the right podcast and then have somebody else who is in their odd. Uh, to, the, to me, the right answer is you come to us for, tra- for strategy and implementation or, you know, for the training of who, who does the implementation. They do the blocking and tackling and you focus on ancillary services or something like yeah, that, right? Yeah, it'd be like other yeah, channels or other ways. Instead of the offense. It's line. almost like it's modern PR. Like, I almost want to say uh, that might be a cheapened term for it, but in some ways it's, it's how can a person leverage what they know and who they want to talk to in more creative ways than they currently are. Yeah. It's uh, somebody and somebody I was, uh, Mark Schaefer wrote a, great, a book on this that I still need to read. I just came across it the other day. Cause I came up with the term. I thought I was a genius and came up with that term the other, just here the other day. And I'm like, Ooh, it's all about return on influence. And then I looked it up and he'd already written a book on it. I don't know if it's from the same angle, but to me, that's, that's the quest. And that's why I started the UX podcast. And that's what I'm the most interested in that I will probably spend the rest of my life solving Thanks, this problem. How do you squeeze the highest profit and the biggest impact in the world out of your brain with the least restrictions on your freedom? 
That's profound. And I don't want to ask any more questions after that. <laughs> Pursuingresults.com and the UX po- podcast. That's it. A hearty, hearty thank you to Matt Johnson of Pursuing Results. It was an awesome uh, opportunity to talk to Matt and learn about his business. It's a unique industry. He's done extremely well with it, and we were glad to get his story and share it with you. Now, stay tuned for next week. We have a huge episode. Tyla Abbott, founder of Aether Beauty, founded just within the last nine months, and she's into the seven figures as a one-person business already. You've got to hear this story. I can't wait to bring it to you next week on Freelance to Founder. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And again, don't forget to rate, review our show, share it with your friends. And thanks, as always, to our friends at the Podglomerate, our podcast network. Catch some of the other shows on the network. And thank you again from all of us here at Milo. We'll catch you next time on Freelance to Founder. <laughs>